Open in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13. We continue our series. There we go. We continue. Thank you, Josh. Appreciate it. Hope it's not too bright. It's good. It is good. I shouldn't complain. I have to teach my own lesson to myself here. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get started. Why don't, we, why don't I pray and thank the Lord and then we can start. Father, we come to you this evening because you alone are worthy of our praise and worship. Uh, you alone are one who has created us and you own us. And Lord, we are responsible to you. As we come to your holy word, like we were singing, speak to us through it, impact our lives, and conform us to the image of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. You know, we live in a country and we are a part of a culture that prides itself in the fact that we have options, that we have choices. If you go to a grocery store, such as Walmart, for example, you know that that is true. We not only have choices with what we eat or what we wear, we also have choices when it comes to our government leaders. Uh, we may not always like what is on the ballot paper, but we do get to vote. Not only that, as consumers, we have come to expect choices and options when it comes to products and services. Uh, for example, once we've decided which television to buy, we have to pick which service we will use. Once we pick a service, we have to then choose which channel that we will watch. When it comes to our drinking options, we are constantly going back and forth, whether it's regular or decaf. When it comes to our driving options, should we take internal roads or highways? You see, researchers at Cornell University estimate that we make 225 decisions each day on food alone. And as your level of maturity and responsibility increases, so does the number of choices that you have to make. It's estimated that the average adult makes about 35,000 remotely conscious decisions each day. Each decision, of course, carries with it consequences that are both bad and good. So how do we decide? The university research goes on to tell us that there are certain decision-making styles or strategies that guide that process. Uh, there is that impulsive decision-maker. He sees the first option and he goes for it. Uh, there is that compliant decision-maker. He chooses that which is most pleasing and comfortable and popular as an option. Then sometimes we delegate. We don't make the decisions ourselves. We push it off to trusted others. Then there is the avoidance or deflection strategy, which is either avoiding or ignoring decisions in an effort to avoid responsibility that comes with it. Uh, there is that person who does the balancing act, which is weighing the factors involved, studying them, and then using that information to render the best decision for that moment. And then there is one who prioritizes and reflects. Uh, he or she puts the most energy and thought and, and effort into those decisions that will have the greatest impact, and then he chooses that particular option. The reality is that in 
increasingly, in an increasingly complex world, the sheer volume of decisions we have to make, we use a combination of these strategies when we make choices. While there may be different strategies, what is true of each one of them is that each one of them reflects the intentions of our heart. In our lesson today, the key individual, the main character, the main, the, the hero is also going to make a decision. He's going to choose and his choice will reflect his heart. So I've titled our lesson for today, Making Godly Choices. Making Godly Choices. We find ourselves in Genesis 13. So let me quickly remind us, because we are doing this lesson for the first time in this new year, let me remind you of the outline of the book of Genesis um, to help us know where we are. We divided the book into two parts. First part is the primeval history uh, that covers four major events covering from chapter 1 to chapter 11. The creation, fall, flood, and, and the nations. And then the second section is the patriarchal history where four key people are mentioned, occupy the rest of the book from chapter 12 to chapter 50. And amongst them, apart from Joseph, you have Abraham who occupies the most space from chapter 12 to chapter 24. One introduction to the book of Genesis reads this way, it's by it's through the Bible knowledge commentary put together by faculty of Dallas Theological Seminary. It says, Genesis is the book of beginnings. It provides a dramatic account of the origins of mankind and his universe, the intrusion of sin into the world, the catastrophic effects of its curse on the race, and the beginnings of God's plan to bless the nation through his seed. All of that captures Genesis for us. And that brings us to, to Genesis 13, which is the second chapter in Abraham's life. We begin by reading then Genesis chapter 13, verse 1 to verse 5. Genesis chapter 13, verse 1 to verse 5. So Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him and Lot with him. Now Abraham was very rich in livestock in silver and in gold, he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, or Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. In Genesis 12, the earlier chapter, Abram was still in Egypt, and he was, at the end of that chapter, escorted away along with his family and uh, wife by Pharaoh's men. They don't go back to the uh, place that they came from, which is Ur of the Chaldeans, um, but they go back to where they had immediately come from, which is Negev, or uh, the, the Hebrew word for south. They are in the southern part of Canaan. Uh, I think I have a map here. Here we go. Uh, this is also where they were before they went into Egypt, Genesis chapter 12, verse 9. Now, if you go from Canaan to Egypt, it's always described as going down to Egypt. If you travel from Egypt to Canaan, 
it is always described as going up. Now it has to do to some extent with the landscape and direction and the topography of the land, but it also has to do symbolically speaking, going towards or away from the Lord or away from the promised land. You see, Abraham left Canaan, the land of promise and blessing in chapter 12, to go down to Egypt. Egypt is a picture of the world. Abraham there was humbled by a pagan king who showed more character and proper fear of God and expelled Abraham. And now, having learned his lesson, he goes up from Egypt to the Negev, verse 1. What is this importance of going down and going up? You see, the first and the second temple, actually, that were built were structures that were built on mountains. And as pilgrims and worshipers uh, would come to Jerusalem to worship, they would go up the mountain. And while they were going up, they would sing songs from the Psalter, which we have in our Psalter by the title, The Song of the Ascents, uh, from um, Psalm chapter 120 to Psalm 134. Those were the songs they would sing going up. And so here we find Abraham leaves Egypt and travels back to the Negev or up to the Negev with his wife Sarai and all that belonged to him. And we are told in verse 1 that also his nephew Lot was with him. Next we are told in verse 2 that this man Abraham was exceedingly rich. He was rich in livestock, he was rich in cattle and herds, and he also had precious metals such as silver and gold. He was truly speaking properly invested. He was ready for inflation. The text says that he was very rich. And the word there for rich is the word that means heavy or, or great. Uh, the same word is translated in Genesis 12.10 as severe. And there it's translated as severe to show us the intensity of the famine that took place in that land. Genesis chapter 12 verse 10. Here the word shows us the largeness, the greatness, perhaps even the power of Abraham. He was a very rich man. And by the way, it is not sin to be rich. It's not sin to be wealthy. It's not sin for you to have money, but it is a sin for money to have you. It's not sin to possess money, but it is sin for money to possess you. The issue then is not money, but the love of money. As Paul, in writing to Timothy, writes this, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. As we understand the context here further, we are told that uh, Abram did not stop at Negev, but actually went back to Bethel, verse 3 and verse 4. Uh, the Hebrew word Bethel means house of God. And just in case we missed it, we are told that this is the same place where he had pitched his tent at the beginning, which is the story that we read in Genesis 12:8. It was between Bethel and Ai. Now he's back where he started off. He started off in the land of Canaan at the place that he had pitched his tent. Now that is the same place in verse 8 of chapter 12 where he had built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. He comes back to the same place, to the same altar, and just like he did in earlier chapter, he again calls on the name of the Lord. He worships the Lord and he proclaims his name. 
What a wonderful picture of restoration. When he had gone to Egypt in chapter 12, we are not told that he built an altar there. We are not told that he called on the name of the Lord there. We are not told that he worshipped the Lord. But now he is back and he deals with the first things first. The praise and worship of God and the proclamation of his wonderful name. Finally, as we consider the context, as we recognize the context, Lot's name comes up again, verse 1 and then verse 5. He is the nephew of Abram, as we learned earlier. He too had gone with Abram to Egypt, and like Abram, he now has flocks, and he's rich, and he has herds, and he has tents. His family, his clan has also grown, and his growth and prosperity will now be the bridge for the next section as we look at it which is the reason for the conflict. Notice verse 6 and verse 7. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling in the land. Notice a word that is repeated a few times in verse 6 and then mentioned once again in verse 7. Notice verse 6, he says, the land could not sustain them while dwelling together. Why? For their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And then at the end of verse 7, the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. The key to understanding this particular section is then the word dwelling. Uh, it is that the land itself was limited. The livestock, the, uh, the flocks, and, and the herds were growing, but the land that was available to them for grazing and for dwelling for the people was restricted. It was not enough to sustain the animals and the growing families of Lot and Abram. Now that limitedness of the land then leads to a strife or a conflict. By the way, the word translated as strife there is a very strong word and sometimes also has been translated as depicting a legal dispute. So this was not an ordinary disagreement, although uh, that is not in mind here for this particular strife, but it was a strong kind of disagreement, and so it was not an ordinary dis disagreement. You know, while riches can bring a lot of comfort, they can also be a curse. As they say, where there is a will, there is a relative, right? And, <laughs> No wonder a lot of lottery winners don't like their name to be advertised because they soon find out about relatives that they never had or known before. But there is no strife like a strife in the family. You know, you've known each other, you've seen each other's strengths and weaknesses, and sometimes all it takes is just a word, or in this case, it took some wealth. But notice the strife that was there. It was not between Abram and Lot yet. It was between the herdsmen of Abram and the herdsmen of Lot. And to compound the issue, we are told, almost as a side note at the end of verse 7, uh, that it was not just Abram and Lot who lived in the land, but it was also occupied by the Canaanites and the Perizzites who were dwelling in the land. They were also using the limited resources that were available. And it just wasn't enough for everyone. And so it's time to make a decision. You can pretend that nothing is wrong, or you can stack the deck in your favor, 
or you can take the initiative to seek a solution and diffuse the crisis. And that brings us thirdly to the reality of the choice, the reality of the choice. This is where we will spend majority of our time together, the reality of the choice, verse 8 to verse 13. So Abraham said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. If to the right, then I will go to the left. Lord lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. Now this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. And so Lord chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lord journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley, and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly, or exceedingly wicked, and sinners against the Lord. You know, as we look at this particular section, we realize that both Abraham and Lot had choices that were, they were to make. And by the nature of his position in the family, Abraham could, if he wanted to, he could have his way. He was the senior person in the family. He could have played the seniority card. Lord, on his part, could, if he wanted to, pursue a path of rebellion against his uncle. Both have choices to make, and both do make their choices, and their choices, as he mentioned before, reveal the bent of their heart. How do we look at what Abraham did? First of all, we recognize that Abraham prioritizes peace over prosperity. Abraham prioritizes peace over prosperity or over possessions. You know, Abraham, we see, takes the initiative of resolving the conflict. He takes the bull by the horn in this case. He calls Lot and he says to him, please let there be no strife between you and me and between our herdsmen. And the word, by the way, please, is a term of entreaty, which is not a surprise. It's pleading or requesting. And out of the 64 times that it's used in Genesis, uh, 30 times it's used in connection with Abraham. Either he said it or someone close to him uses that word, humility. He not only initiates the discussion then, he also sets the tone for the discussion. Uh, there is humility on display here on Abraham's part. He also is one who not only initiates, but he also anticipates a strife between himself and Lot if the strife between their herdsmen is not resolved. The reason, he says, there could be a strife or there is a strife or there should not be a strife is that they are brothers, they are relatives. Notice at the end of verse 8. Please let there be no strife between you and me nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen for we are brothers. Now, it's possible that Abraham being the youngest son and Lot being the son of the oldest son of Terah, Abraham's brother, it's possible that they may both have been of a similar age. We don't know for sure, but they were related. That we know for sure. It's clear that we cannot thrive if we are together, they say. And right now, the conflict is on a smaller scale. But if not addressed, that conflict can become a larger conflict very soon. So before it gets there, let's make a decision. 
Look, Abraham says, the whole land is before you. Please separate from me. Let us go our separate ways. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. Now, that's not a political language. These are actual directions. Uh, in saying this to Lord, Abram reveals that he has learned some lessons from his time in Egypt. And he's growing as a man of faith. You see, Abram is revealing a, a sense of deep contentment and satisfaction in God. The God, the same God who called him. And godliness with contentment, as we know from scriptures, is a great gain. He's not worried about which side Lot will choose because he knows that regardless of the side Lot chooses, the God that he believes in owns it all. What a deep sense of rest and peace that must give Abraham, and it should give us as children of God. Abraham is also revealing that the inclination of his heart is to find satisfaction in God, not in possessions. He's revealing that he desires to worship God rather than property. He's revealing that he desires to worship the creator rather than that which is created. I don't know the exact situation you are in or you may be in, but if you have relatives or if you are in a setting where there is relationship with other individuals, uh, such as a church setting is concerned, we will lo have lots of opportunities to face conflicts. And your response to those conflicts reveal your heart. Abraham then prioritizes peace over prosperity. But notice Lot's response. Lot prioritizes short-term gains over long-term losses. Lot prioritizes short-term gains over long-term losses. You know, many commentators, as I was reading them, think uh, of Lot as a pagan relative of Abram. He was the unbeliever, they will say, in the relationship. But that actually does not jive with what the rest of the scriptures mention. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter mentions about Lot. Second Peter chapter 2. And we'll pick in verse 7. Let me read verse 4 and then we'll read verse 7. Peter writes, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. He's talking about Genesis. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and then verse 7, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. So we have to think of, so Peter thinks of Lot as one who is a righteous man. So we have to think at the basic that Lot was one who was a believer in the same sense that Abraham was a believer uh, by believing in the Lord. We can think of Lot as a weaker believer who hasn't yet grown mature in his faith. How do we know that? Notice verse 8. Uh, it's almost in parenthesis. Peter writes, For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, that is Lot, 
while living among them, that is amongst people in Sodom, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Lord then was a believer. And what does he do? Well, he lifts up his eyes and sees the valley of Jordan, verse 10. He saw, it says, that it was a well-watered location, that it was lush green. And that was not the case when the Israelites came back from, from Egypt uh, many, many years, at least six to 700 years after this particular incident. And so Moses records that comment there for his readers who are reading when they're coming back from uh, Egypt during the Exodus, he tells them uh, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. That is, those two cities that were known for its evil. Uh, this, before they were destroyed, that's when Lot actually went there. But notice a few expressions. He says, this, these locations, they were like the garden of the Lord, and it was the land of Egypt. It looks like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. Now, Moses mentions Egypt and the route to Zoar because he knew that his fellow Israelites would know exactly what he's talking about as they related that to their experience coming out of Egypt. Also, Zoar was a location that was on the south end of the Dead Sea, and the word merely means a small place. But it was the first comparison that Moses makes that should actually catch your attention. Moses compares the valley of the Jordan to the garden of the Lord, that is to Eden. That should make you sit up and take notice of what he is doing. Because the path that Lot is following here is also the path that someone else followed when presented with a choice. And that someone was, of course, Adam and Eve, and Eve in particular. You don't have to turn there, but in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, Moses records for us when the woman, that is Eve, saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. She took it, she saw it, she took it, and she ate it. And here too, we are told, Lot lifted up his eyes. He saw the immediate benefit to him, and then he moved to the valley, and he settled there, verse 11 and 12. Notice Lot's gradual descent into sin. Yes, it is gradual and a slow, slow process. You see, no man just happens to find himself with another woman who is not his wife. All those gradual compromises, all those seemingly harmless habits, uh, all those little choices add up to where you ultimately end up to be. a few steps that I've tracked with Lot as we think of his descent into sin. Uh, the first step we already saw, he looked. He looked and he took, verse 11. Uh, tells us that he chose the valley for himself, the valley of Jordan, that he journeyed eastward. Uh, that itself is also another clue, this particular direction in the Bible. Uh, eastward signals a movement away from God away from what that which was good for man in the eternal and ultimate sense. God, if you remember, expelled Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, and he drove them towards the east, Genesis 3.24. 
in the next chapter when their son, who also commits sin and murder, when Cain is driven away from the presence of the Lord, he goes and settles in the land of Nod, which is east of Eden, Genesis 4.16. Remember after the flood, when man rebelled against God in Genesis 11, we are told in Genesis 11.2 that they journeyed eastward. And so Lot, in his first step, is moving away from God. But secondly, we are told he pitched his tents near Sodom, verse 12. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. He's most probably familiar with the wickedness of this valley with Sodom and Gomorrah. Therefore, instead of living in the city, he moves close to the city. Uh, this is like trying to eat your cake and have it too. You get the benefits of the city, but you're not really part of the city. But this is also a dangerous game to play. It's like playing with fire and not expecting to be burned. That is his second step. Thirdly, if you were to go down to chapter 14, verse 12, there we are told as a conflict arises in this part of the region uh, that people came and attacked Lot's area. And there we are told in verse 12, they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Next, we see him living in Sodom. It isn't difficult to imagine Lot saying to himself, you know, I'm going, to, I'm going into the city for all my shopping anyway. It's much more convenient to stay in the city rather than spending money on transportation and the time that is wasted. Why don't I just move myself, my family into the city itself? But you see, settling in the city was one step, but it was not even enough. If you were to go down to Genesis 19, verse 1, when the angels come to visit Lot, with the information to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, notice where they find him, Genesis 19.1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. He was sitting in the gates of Sodom. That is, he now is a prominent member of the city. And in today's terms, he was on the city council. The elders of the city met at the city gates to conduct important business of the city. And when the angels go to, to Sodom, they find Lot at the gates of Sodom. It's not true that James writes, our Lord's half-brother, let no one say when he is tempted that I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That's what sin always does. It leads to death. Sin begins in the heart. And you may think that it takes place in the privacy of your room. But the fact of the matter is, is, that, is that it never remains there. God's descent into sin. Before I leave this section, notice verse 13 of chapter 13. I want us to observe a few things as we get a sense of how bad this valley really was. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. 
Moses tells us that these were exceedingly wicked sinners and they were sinning against the Lord. The word exceedingly is the same word that is translated as very in verse 2. Abraham was very rich. Here we are told that they are exceedingly sinful people. Wicked would have been enough for Moses to describe them, to tell us the status of their heart, but Moses tells us, no, they were exceedingly wicked. Not only that they were exceedingly wicked, we are told they are exceedingly wicked sinners. If that is not enough, Moses goes on to tell us that they were exceedingly wicked sinners against the Lord. It should be obvious that all sin is against the Lord. Moses, uh, rather David, tells us that in Psalm 51. But in specifying it this way, Moses is preparing his readers for something very catastrophic that is coming in Genesis 19. You see, in the Bible, when sin and its implications are mentioned, death is mentioned as well. We looked at James 1. We know Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is, is death. And in fact, in the first five books of the Bible, sin or sinners face immediate or sudden death. Sin is, is fatal. Exceedingly wicked sin is extremely fatal. It is a given, it is a certain that they will face the consequences for their sins. Uh, these men then were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Gordon Venom in his commentary writes, the rare phraseology implies the extreme seriousness of Sodom's sin. Thus, obliquely, the future fate of the city is indicated and the folly of Lot's choice is underlined. Calvin, he quotes Calvin, who writes about this passage, Lot, when he fancied he was living in paradise, was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. Well put. What are some of the lessons that we can draw from this section? How do we make godly choices? I want to share five lessons from this particular section, and we do have the rest of the chapter to cover still. First of all, in conflict, Pursue peace rather than possessions. Better to give up immediate gain than immediate victory in a conflict and relationships and pursue peace. Isn't it our Lord who says, Matthew 5, 9, in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Paul, in writing to the Romans, Romans 12, 18, says, for as much, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. In conflict, pursue peace rather than possession. Secondly, anticipate conflict in a relationship. You know, we all live in the same world, a world that is infected with sin and disease. Disease even as a result of sins. And in a sinful and a fallen world, disagreements and, and tensions, conflicts and strives are some things that are to be anticipated. Not something that are to be longed for, but something that are to be anticipated. You see, when you anticipate them, you put yourself, with God's help, you put yourself in the best position to respond. And you will end up acting and not reacting. So by the way, not all conflict or disagreement or separation is sinful or, or bad. You know, sometimes for the sake of God's glory and for the sake of the greater good of God's people, separation may be a good choice. We certainly find that even in godly people, 
who can end up disagreeing with each other. One such example is Paul and Barnabas in, in Acts chapter 15. You see, on the second missionary journey, Paul wanted to take, uh, did not want to take John Mark with them, but Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with them. Uh, Paul did not want him to take did not want them to take John Mark with them because he had deserted them in the first missionary journey. And so they couldn't come to an agreement. And so Barnabas took John Mark and he, he sailed to Cyprus. And Paul took Silas and he left for Syria. They went their own ways. So sometimes separation may be a good, good choice. And, you know, sometimes churches separate. Or we, you know, you know, we also call church plans, for example, we do that for the greater glory of God. As many of you know, our church was the sending church for North Lake Bible Church. And churches plan churches. Individuals don't plan churches. God uses individuals. But it's essentially churches that plant churches. And by God's grace, they are thriving. And in a few years, if they become stronger, they need to think of planting other churches. And so sometimes separation can be for good reasons as well. But in relationships, as you think of separations, you, you need to anticipate conflict in a relationship so that you can get ready to respond to them in a godly way. Thirdly, pursue a path of long-term benefit, not short-term gains. Pursue a path of long-term benefit, not short-term gains. All of us here in the single adults group particularly need to hear this. You see, illegitimate pleasure always precedes pain and hurt. Illegitimate pleasure always precedes pain and hurt. First, there is the pleasure and then follows the pain. But legitimate pleasure, on the other hand, always follows sacrifice and pain. Pursue a path of long-term benefit, not short-term gains. Fourthly, if we can learn anything from Abram and how he dealt with his Wealth, hold possessions loosely and fix your eyes on God. Hold possessions loosely and fix your eyes on God. If I can put it another way, prioritize God above everything else. Isn't it our Lord who reminds us of this, Matthew 6, Seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Hold possessions loosely and fix your eyes on God. Fifthly and finally, be generous with what God has blessed you. Be generous with what God has blessed you. We are studying First John in our study in the morning in our church. Uh, John writes in First John 3.17, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Can we even say this brother loves his fellow brother or sister in Christ? Hebrews 13, 16, do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Proverbs 22, 9, for he who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. Paul, when he was interacting with the elders from Ephesus, tells them, our Lord himself said this, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Be generous with what God has blessed you. We've looked at the recognition of the context, the reason for the conflict, 
the reality of a choice. Fourthly, we come to the reminder of the covenant. The reminder of the covenant. Genesis 13, 14 to 17. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk, about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. And you know, previously it was Abraham who said to Lot, notice in verse 8, it was Abraham who had said to Lot, and it was Lot who had lifted up his eyes and seen. And now we have God who speaks to Abraham, and he tells him to lift up his eyes. This time it's, it's not just to the left or right, this time it's northward and southward and Eastward and westward, verse 14, in all directions, because the entire earth belongs to our Lord. Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. What else happens in this particular section as we look at the reminder of the covenant? The promises become even more clearer and more specific. You see, in chapter 12, it was God had, who had called Abraham to go to the land that he will show him. Here, the land is now specified a little more. The land that, that you see, Abraham, I'm going to give it to you and to your descendants. In chapter 12, he was told he will be made uh, a great nation. Here, he is told that God will make his descendants as the dust of the earth. So that if you can number the particles, the dust particles of the earth, then your descendants will also be, be able to be numbered. It's, it's a way of saying they will be many, abundantly many. He will be blessed as regards to his possessions and he will be blessed in regards to the people who will consider him as the founder or the father of their nation. But he's not only to look, he's also to walk, verse 17. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. And by looking and walking on the land that would be the promised land, it is as if God is transferring the right to that particular property to Adam, to rather to Abram. So God is, in that sense, using common terminology, God is deeding the land. He is transferring the ownership or the rights to that land to Abram. Walk on this land, its length and its breadth, for I will give it to you. How does Abram respond? It will bring us finally to the response of commitment, verse 18. Then Abraham moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Notice his journey. He moves, first of all, he starts from Ur of the Chaldeans, and he goes to Haran. From Haran to Canaan. From Canaan, he comes to Shechem, to the oak of Moreh, in, in chapter 12. Then he moves to Bethel. He builds an altar there. Then he moves to Negev. From Negev, he goes to Egypt. All of this, by the way, is happening in chapter 12. From Egypt, he comes back to Negev, which is chapter 13. From Negev, he moves up to, to Bethel. Finally, in verse 18, we are told he's at the oaks of Mamre near Hebron. 
it's quite a journey that Abraham has been on. But it's not just a journey, it's also a response to God. You see, in chapter 12, we see him moving from one location to another, but never settling down anywhere. He passes through Shechem, he proceeds from there to the mountains on the east of Bethel, then he journeys continuing towards Negev, but he never settles there and anywhere. But for the first time in verse 18, we are told that he moved his tent and he dwelt, he settled in the oaks of Mamre. These are, we are told, near Hebron, which is probably a town that did not exist at that time of Abraham, first mentioned in Genesis 23 again, or rather mentioned again in Genesis 23. There it's called Kiryat Arba. So it did not exist during Abraham's time, but it was surely in existence during Moses' time. In fact, it is mentioned as a valley in Genesis 37. The word Hebron just means to join. Uh, it means also to commune. It is to have fellowship. In leaving the promised land and going to Egypt, you find Abraham moving away from God. There's no communion with God there. There's no fellowship. There's no worship. In fact, there is no worship at all with his people and more temptation to sin. But now he's back in the land that God has promised him. He's restored back to fellowship. You know, if you're a child of God, you, you know the sense of humility that can come upon you as you realize what God has done for you. If you're Abraham, you're saying to yourself, Lord, I was that moon worshiper in Ur. I was worshiping the moons when you called me. I was one who worshipped other gods. I was the one that delayed obedience to you and instead of going to Canaan, I went to Haran. I was the one who, after coming to the promised land, left to go to Egypt away from you. I was the one who did not remember you, Lord. And now you tell me that I and my descendants are going to receive all this, that I'll have countless descendants. Lord, Lord I, I know that you don't make mistakes, but perhaps in my case... You know, it seems too good to be true. In your sense, with a sense of humility that must have overshadowed what Abraham is thinking here. What does he do? At the end of that verse, in verse 18, we are told, and there he built an altar to God. An altar is a place of worship. It's a place where Abraham sacrificed an animal and worshipped God. Fellowship with God, you see, leads to worship of God. And worship of God leads to more fellowship with God. And such a godly and healthy spiritual relationship becomes one that leads him to be more and more like God. An altar is a place of worship, but it's also a place of proclamation. It is a place of declaration. God is declared from here as true and promise-keeping. It's a place of worship. It's a place of proclamation. But it's also a place of sacrifice. It's a place where animals were sacrificed. The sacrifice of animals took place on altars. It's a symbolic representation of the fact that the animal that was killed took upon himself the guilt and punishment that Abram actually deserved. That's what Abram is responding to God with. If you're a child of God, you and I are to praise and worship this great God. A God who is loving and kind, compassionate and gracious, merciful and so very patient with you and me. 
If you're a child of God and your fellowship with God is broken, there is no joy in your salvation because you have some unconfessed sin or, or a habitual pattern of sin, you can take it to him and he will forgive you of them. Proverbs 28, 13, the proverb writer says, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Go to him. Seek his forgiveness if you find yourself in a position where you have sinned and not yet gone to him to confess it and to seek his forgiveness. But perhaps you are here and you're not a child of God. The only way for you to become a child of God, for you to come to Christ, is through another place of sacrifice. And that place was called Calvary. There, God took his son, his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he sacrificed him for you and for me. The text also tells us that Jesus gave himself up willingly for you and for me. And that sacrifice was acceptable to God. See, all the previous sacrifices, including Abraham's here in verse 18, merely covered the sin, but they never removed the sin. Uh, the previous sacrifices pointed to this particular sacrifice that took place on Calvary 2,000 years back. And those who placed their trust in this particular sacrifice, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, are restored to a fellowship with God. Their sins are forgiven, and God does not hold their sins against them anymore because his son has made the payment for all of them. As we come to the end of this particular chapter, my prayer for you is that even as you, if you are a child of God, that you would be counseled by the word of God to, to make godly decisions. If you're not a child of God, that it would be a reality for you even tonight that you would come to place your trust in him, that you would repent of your sins and trust in him alone. Let me close our time in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the clarity with which your word speaks to us. I thank you for Abraham and for this particular story that is recorded for us. Your word also reminds us that everything that is recorded in your word is for our instruction as an example to us. And so we thank you for the example of Abraham and for his life, for the faith that he displayed in these circumstances. God, help us to prioritize you over what we possess. Help us to worship you rather than what you have created. May all of us be better decision makers as a result of the study of your word, even tonight. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.